Hi, my name is Jack Shannon. Welcome to St. Athanasius Reformed Catholic Podcast. Jesus tells us that divorce and remarriage is adultery, and yet if you speak this, if you try to teach it, uh, or actually believe that what Jesus said on this is true, you will be met with a myriad of objections. And so today we're going to be going through some of those objections. One common objection is that Jesus allows for uh, divorce and remarriage in the case of adultery. Now, uh, most of church history in the West has not uh, believed this. The early church fathers, the uh, fathers of the Middle Ages, um, even some proto-reformers, and uh, even some uh, denominations after the Reformation, particularly the Anglican Church, viewed uh, divorce was um, permissible in the case of repetitive sexual immorality, um, but that remarriage was always uh, prohibited. Okay, so so why why would they interpret it that way? Because in the Gospel of Luke, it's an absolute prohibition. In the Gospel of Mark, it's an absolute prohibition. Luke 16, Mark 10, uh, 11 through 12. And then in Matthew 5, um, it's not the same thing as Matthew 19:9. although some people say that, that Matthew 5 is just an elaboration of Matthew 19. I'm not totally sure, but you have absolute prohibitions in Mark and Luke, and then in Matthew 5, the exception clause is talking about the culpability of the husband who divorces the woman. It's not about uh, an exception for allowing for remarriage. Matthew 5 cannot be used as uh, an argument for uh, remarriage. Neither can Matthew 19, but um, that's, that is, uh, so, so you have clear passages which are total prohibitions that always, that say divorce and marriage is always adultery. And um, when Paul summarizes this teaching in um, 1 Corinthians 7, he says, uh, not I, but the Lord says this, and he doesn't mention any kind of exception. He says, don't divorce, but if you do divorce, remain single and pray for reconciliation. So when he summarizes Jesus' own teachings, he doesn't have an exception for adultery. Uh, same thing in Romans 7, when Paul talks about it, there's no kind of exception there for the woman who leaves her husband and marries somebody else. Uh, so then, then you also have the, 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 context, the context of his disciples saying that if this is the case, then it's better not to marry. That can be interpreted a lot of different ways as well. But the reaction from the disciples indicates that they had never heard this teaching before. It indicates kind of shock on their part. And this teaching that allows for divorce in the case of adultery was taught by the conservative school of Pharisees. So you have contextual coherence if you say that this is a, a new teaching that Jesus was, was bringing to them. But if you just say that it's, it's allowing for uh, divorce and remarriage in the case of adultery, that's what the conservative school of Pharisees already taught. So it's not really, um, it doesn't make sense that they would respond so strongly in that way. Um, and I guess the last thing, since you have these clear prohibitions in all these other passages, even in Matthew 19, when he appeals to the create, created order, the Pharisees say, well, why did Moses give us the certificate of divorce? Jesus, what he says and the way that they respond indicate that he's making absolute prohibitions here. And they're baffled, so then they appeal to Moses. And Jesus says, because it's the hardness of your heart. But that's not 
That's not the way it was meant to be. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the created order. So that is, uh, that's something to, to take into consideration. And if you look at the Westminster Confession, you look at most hermeneutic books. Bernard Brom has a book on Protestant interpretation. The way that we understand obscure passages um, or passages which are, are difficult is we look at the clear passages. And if you look at all the clear passages, uh, in, 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 in order to honestly harmonize them, I think you have to come up with, you have to land in a position which doesn't allow for remarriage, but allows for di divorce, um, for, for um, sexual immorality. Um, so those are, those are reasons for why it was interpreted that way for such a long time. The majority of Christian history in the West has interpreted it in, in a way which um, allows for divorce in cases of sexual morality, um, but not for remarriage. Some people have read that passage to mean uh, Je Jesus is talking about the betrothal uh, period. I don't think that this um, pass. I don't think that that's what that means. But we both end up in the same place. We both believe that um, that Jesus doesn't allow remarriage. So uh, that's that. Th those are. That's one answer, or that's one answer to a very common objection. Some people may appeal to the, Deuter the, the Deuteronomical law where Moses does allow for divorce, and Jesus says that he allows for divorce in the case of immorality. And um, he's not talking about the entire Deuteronomy 24 clause there. And um, even, in the, even in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, Jesus tells us, well, the law says that the second marriage um, defiles the woman. And there are commentators who say that defile means adultery. It becomes difficult because adultery is often punishable by death, and in that instance it's not. So um, you get into a lot of really difficult things there, but she's prohibited from returning to her husband because of the defilement of the second marriage. I actually believe that that is um, still binding to us today. Most people in the permanency camp do not because they mistaken, mistakenly clump what Jesus says about the certificate of divorce with the prohibition of return. Well, Jesus isn't talking about the prohibition of return there. He's only talking about the certificate of divorce, which allows for remarriage, which allowed for remarriage. And even in the, the law itself, uh, if the Pharisees actually took the law seriously, they would see that remarriage is um, sinful, even in the law. You didn't, even have, you didn't even need Jesus to come along and say that. They should have known that from the law itself and then even from uh, the creation ordinance, which the, the creational setup, which is what um, Jesus has, uh, Jesus appeals to in these, in these instances. Okay, uh, what's the second one? I'm, I'm, I'm going through the second chapter of my book, um, and kind of just bringing out a few of the things that I talk about in there, where I answer, I answer these objections more thoroughly. Um, something else to consider is that when people make this appeal to the exception clause, they are actually, um, they do not consistently apply it in their own congregations. So I was part of a, I was part of a church community for a few years, and I saw. I witnessed that they were that there were people in there who were divorced and remarried with permission from the clergy, um, who did not fall under 
uh, the exception clauses that they subscribe to in the Westminster Confession that, that for divorce or for adultery or for desertion, they allowed remarriage in, in instances that uh, neither one of these things occurred in. One uh, argument I've heard, and this is mainly among Reformed um, people who subscribe to a covenantal framework of understanding Scripture, is that uh, is that God is divorced and remarried. That God divorces Old Covenant Israel and remarries New Covenant Israel, the Church. And um, the diff and I I simply let's say um, I I am also I also read the the Bible covenantally. I subscribe to a, a mono covenantalism, if you will. Um, but the the let's say okay, let's take that. What happens for somebody to be grafted into the new covenant? Well, they have to die. They die in baptism. And Romans seven talks about this: that the covenant or the law, um, that that the law had to die in a sense. And so the covenant made at Sinai uh, dies through baptism. You can you can you can lean into the the um, analogy that they want to use. They want to draw there with the different covenants and say, well. Death occurs. Everybody who's in the new covenant has died to their old co the old covenant. They've all died by being baptized into Christ. And baptism into Christ is being baptized into his death and his burial and his resurrection. And so, um, so I, I think that so that doesn't that argument doesn't really work too well either. Many people will say that if you were divorced and remarried when you were not a Christian that you are allowed to stay in that in that marriage. And I would just simply say, well, the, the laws of marriage apply to everybody equally, whether you're a Christian or not. It's a creational ordinance. So everybody who's in Adam still is under the obligations of, of um, those um, ethical standards. And Scripture acknowledges non-believers in their marriages all the time. So a Roman Catholic view of sacramental marriage is... I think obliterated by scripture itself it, uh, you can get an annulment in a Roman Catholic church by uh, by saying well I didn't my, my spouse didn't expect to have they didn't have the intention of having children um, well you don't have to have the intention of having children for it to be a valid marriage that should be part of what marriage is but uh, it doesn't invalidate the marriage so simply simply put uh, yeah, God does forgive what you did when you were a non-believer, but there's still consequences for those things. And you should, uh, any kind of sin that is uh, continually occurring, uh, let's say you, you, you are a kleptomaniac, you're a thief. Well, when, you're, when you become a Christian, you stop sinning. You stop, uh, you stop indulging in that, in that um, immorality. And so the argument that uh, you're a non-believer, and so you can continue. It, it basically comes down to that. I'm a non-believer, so I can continue in this sin. No, you can't. And that's that's also the disconnect. They think that it's just the marriage which is sinful, but it's not the actual forsaking of your first marriage and going into a new marriage. This covenant breaking is a perpetual sin, and it has to be uh, rejected. And so that's a that's a huge problem. And uh, Scripture clearly shows that. That non-believers are their their marriages are valid. Okay, so this this one you get a lot as well, and it's what about love? What about grace? How is this gracious? How is this loving? And what's hilarious is conservatives make this argument, and 
and in the same breath, then they'll argue against liberals who make the same argument against them for homosexual marriage. And they will say, well, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's loving and gracious to tell a homosexual couple that they need to separate. And that's really what, I, whenever I'm on campus talking with people or just talking with anybody, if they say, well, I just don't think that somebody should have to separate. That's just really sinful. And that was the main thing that, uh, that, that is the main thing that really gets, that freaks people out is saying people need to separate. They do because it's sinful. And we're hypocritical for saying that homosexuals need to separate, but not heterosexuals who are, who are divorced and remarried. And they say, well, what do you think somebody who is divorced and remarried, uh, what do they need to do to repent? And, and if they're a conservative, I, I would say, well, w let's say somebody who is not a Christian and then and they married somebody of the same sex, they were homosexuals and they married them, and then they become a Christian, they want to live for Christ, what, what does repentance look like for them? You just ask them. Ask them what they would do in that situation. And then they have to make a distinction between homosexual marriages and divorce and remarriage. And, uh, of course, there's differences there, and uh, it's definitely a perversion, but it's, it is, it's just a more obvious perversion than divorce and remarriage. And so, um, yeah, that's, that argument doesn't work either. So, so what is the gracious thing to do? What is the loving thing to do? Both adultery and homosexuality are sins that are um, punishable by death um, in the Old Covenant, and in the New Covenant they will prevent you from inheriting the kingdom. And if you practice these things, Jesus will say, Depart from me, uh, you who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. And that's another thing. If you just appeal to Matthew 7, people come up to Jesus and they say, We did all these things in your name. And people will bring that, that up often. What about people who do m miraculous things for Jesus or have fruit in their ministry? Well, read Matthew 7. And Jesus says, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. It's possible to have a fruitful ministry, to have a successful ministry, and yet be practicing lawlessness. And if you are in lawlessness, if you are in homosexual marriage or an adulterous remarriage, you will not inherit the kingdom. Jesus will say, depart from me. And so the loving thing to do, the gracious thing to do, is to call that person to repentance and to have them forsake it and so that they, they might uh, attain eternal life. And uh, it's, it's not a works-based thing. It's an entirely grace-based thing. It is through the, the work uh, of Jesus that any man is saved. And, uh, but uh, what Jesus calls a man to do is to die and to repent of his sins, to pick up his cross and to follow him daily. Okay, and, and then I guess the last thing, and I kind of talked about this in the video before, why obsess over this sin? Well, it's the one sin that the church has allowed to occur. That's it. Almost every other sin the church will acknowledge as sinful, even if they are practicing it or it's rampant, in their church, they'll, they'll still say pornography is sinful, even if their clergy and the people in their con uh, congregation are indulging in that sin, they'll still say, no, this is sinful. They don't get together and have uh, liturgies and ceremonies celebrating the sin of pornography and masturbation, but they will with uh, adultery, an adulterous marriage. And so that's the main reason. It, uh, Isaiah says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And so that's the state that we're in. We're in a state where the church is calling good evil and evil good. And that is, um, 
why we're losing the culture. That is why we have no power. It is why um, uh, <laughs> it's why it, yeah, it's why the church is becoming irrelevant. And and all of these things that are happening in the news, the shootings, the I guess California is possibly going to ban the Bible. All of these things are your fault. You, as Christians who aren't doing anything, and the clergy who, who um, are really just, they're ruling like the kings of, of Israel in that they're just looking out for themselves and, um, and they're letting the people indulge in idolatry. So uh, those, are, those are some answers to some really, I guess, common uh, objections. And uh, if you have any more objections or, or you want a more uh, in-depth, you can, you, can you can check out Contra Mundum Swagger. And I talk about these things uh, more in depth. And um, I mean, the same arguments always come up over and over again. And so if you master these common objections, you, you'll, you'll be able to answer quite a bit of, uh, of stuff that's thrown at you. So hopefully that was helpful. Uh, I'll see you guys in